Good afternoon. I'd like to thank everyone for coming today to another Atlantic Council event on the very key question of reform in Ukraine. I'm not going to bore you by discussing the subject, but we've got some true experts um, ready to do that for you or with you. Um, I'm delighted to uh, introduce to you today um, Aliana Bilan and Mike Duane. You have their bios, so I'm not going to read them to you. Let me just make the, the brief point that they are young folks committed to reform in Ukraine, deeply knowledgeable about the financial and economic system, what the problems are, and enthusiastic about putting out publicly what is happening that is positive and what needs to be done. And I went to Ukraine for the first time uh, in almost a dozen years uh, in June of 2014 and met across the spectrum, but with young reformers to make the point that there's a natural convergence of interest between the reformers in Ukraine and the well-wishers of Ukraine in the West, and they've got to work together to nudge the most powerful people in Ukraine to move in the right direction. And today is, a, is part of that process. And the report that they will deliver to you is part of that process. And the person who's going to moderate discussions is, I think, without doubt, the world, the Western expert, not just on the Ukrainian economy, but on, on economies in transition, um, Dr. Anders Osland, who joined the council a few months ago. And with that, I will get off the stage. Ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, Anders Åslund. Let me just introduce Olena uh, Bilan. I should say that Olena uh, uh, writes uh, for Dragon Capital, the best macroeconomic report that you can find about uh, Ukraine. Once a month she comes out, and this is what uh, I usually re rely upon what it is. So here you have her in person. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much uh, to everyone. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, the ambassador. Um, I'm really happy to be here today. And this is really a great pleasure and honor for me to, um, to be here and to represent uh, Vox Ukraine. So I work for Dragon Capital here. I'm a member of the editorial board of, or board of Vox Ukraine. And this is a group of Ukrainian economists um, who gathered to promote reforms in, in my country. So here we present a, a, a work that we uh, wrote all together for four of us, uh, myself, uh, Mike Dion, who will be speaking after, uh, today as well, Yuri Gridnichenko and uh, Ilona uh, Salagup. Now, and actually in, in my uh, professional uh, life, the most a common statement about my country, about Ukraine, I hear is that this is a country with uh, great people and great economic potential that have never materialized. Um, and uh, after years of mismanagement, uh, nearly every aspect of economic and political life in Ukraine needs reforms. But the key question is not whether the country must implement reforms, but rather where the current administration should start the process and devote most of its time and resources. And to answer this question, uh, Vox Ukraine conducted a small survey of uh, experts um, and identified five key areas uh, which, which are the most pressing. 
me check how the thing works. Okay, sorry. Yeah, here we go. These are corruption. So there is nothing to explain here. Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is a, a corrupt country, and um, this is one of the worst uh, corrupt uh, in the world. It ranks 130. Sorry, 142nd in the Corruption Perception Index out of 175. The second area of concern is, or was, I would say, was an energy sector. Just uh, two uh, numbers that reveals how inefficient it was and how, how heavily subsidized it was. There is a company uh, that imports gas, Naftogaz Ukraine, and this company uh, ran a so-called structural deficit in 2014 of more than 5% of GDP, and this was higher than the general government deficit. And also the uh, gas imports was very much uh, reliant on, on Russia and made Ukraine exposed to only one su supplier. Last year, 92% of gas was coming from this one destination. So business regulation, this is the third area of concern and uh, the business environment in Ukraine was plugged by regulation, complicated and unstable taxation and concentration of market power. There is a huge problem of bureaucracy in this country. Another two uh, very telling examples of how inefficient the uh, bureaucracy is. Um, the deputy prosecutor general receives a monthly salary of only 260 US dollars per month. This is an official salary that is uh, paid. So, and this person is, to, is supposed to fight a million dollar uh, corruption schemes. And another number that I like very much is that 40% of the civil servants get a minimum salary. And the minimum salary in Ukraine is $56 per month at current exchange rate. So basically, this makes this uh, all the system is very inefficient. It's um, it's uh, largely discredited in the eyes of uh, public. So at this low salary level, people can just work um, uh, efficiently. So and the finally, what um, what many uh, experts noted is what we call in general a financial sector, but this is a broad uh, category that uh, includes uh, macroeconomic policies in general. This is a monetary policy, the banking system, the uh, uh, public finance. Uh, for instance, the um, very weak supervision of the banking system uh, together with the fixed um, exchange rate regime was a major cause of multiple banking and currency crisis in the country. So basically the new management uh, of the country, the new administration appreciates the uh, vital importance um, of these challenges um, in these five areas. What is also very important is that international community is providing important political and financial support to Ukraine. Uh, the administration of Ukraine can count on 50 billion support from the IFIs, international financial um, institutions and individual countries. So this consists of two packages. Uh, one was approved in 2014 and Ukraine has drawn $10 billion from it. And now there is another package for four years for total amount of 40 billion US dollars and it could be even uh, more. This is a combined contribution by the IMF, by the World Bank, uh, uh, European uh, um, Investment Bank, EBRD, and individual countries such as Germany, Japan, and many others. So what is important about this package 
is that almost each uh, dollar from IFIs in individual countries come in exchange for reforms. The IMF naturally takes a lead in this, in assigning conditionality. And um, also within the kind of a broad-based and uh, deep um, uh, program that we have with IMF now, the special attention is paid to um, uh, deep-rooted problems of poor governance and uh, corruption. So given all that, are there any reforms taking place in Ukraine? So the answer is yes, and here is why. Uh, we as a group, uh, I mean Vox Ukraine, uh, we monitored the progress of economic reforms in five key areas since early of this year. So this, the result of this monitoring is an index. The index can run from minus five, meaning like there is a huge regress in uh, reforms to plus five, meaning that there is fast and deep progress. So it's done on a bi-weekly basis by a pool of more than 30 experts and uh, uh, partner institutions. So each two weeks, uh, these people assess the legislation that is being approved and give their general assessment of what's going on, how quickly and how deeply the reforms are going on. And you see that for the whole monitoring period, there were not a single week where there were no reforms, but the only problem that they are moving quite slowly. So we, um, we kind of assume that an acceptable pace of, of reforms should be an index number of above two, and we had only several um, several periods like this, and uh, this is mostly thanks to legislation that was required by the uh, international uh, financial uh, organizations. So uh, the experts also, based on experts' assessment, there is a several very important steps forward that I would like to um, uh, to list here. The the biggest score. Uh, was assigned to a 285% gas tariff hike. The reason for this is that it's not just, you know, just an increase in prices as um, many countries do. The reason for this is that it was a measure to uh, cut inefficiency in the energy sector, improve public finance, and also to reduce corruption opportunities in this sector, which, which the low gas price. Uh, offered. So another important legislation that was approved um, uh, concerned the banking system. This um, actually, there, there were several laws that facilitated the cleanup of the system and increased liability of bank owners. Basically, before this legislation was approved, it was impossible to punish an owner of a bank or a manager of a bank who who mismanaged the institution and basically made it bankrupt. Now this is, uh, this is possible and the banking system cleaning is going on. We will um, discuss it uh, later today. So there is another very important uh, development in the energy market. Um, this is a new uh, gas market law uh, that is in line with the European standards and basically the main task that it does, it demonopolizes uh, the market. There were several regulations in business environment, um, sorry, several steps to deregulate the business environment and increase transparency of public procurement and also a big achievement was a new patrol police. And at this stage I would like to pass the floor to my colleague uh, Mike Duan, who will tell you a little bit more about what's going on in the anti-corruption uh, uh, campaign. Thank you.
Thank you, Elena. Um, since I'm not Ukrainian, I try to remind myself why corruption is such an important issue for Ukrainians and to look at it from a Ukrainian perspective. I'd like to tie it back to Maidan. During Maidan, the Western media tended to cover the events as Ukrainians' desire to move closer to the EU, or alternatively, as a kind of an extension of a Cold War dynamic that played on the spheres of influence between US and Russia. But for Ukrainians, it was something very different. For Ukrainians, it was a revolution of dignity. It was a moment when the nation came together and decided that they would no longer live under an oppressive regime. And one of the things that most typified that regime was corruption. And this is why post-Maidan, corruption is such an important issue. Now, for those of us in the West, it can be a little difficult to understand what corruption means for everyday Ukrainians. Of course, we see statistics like 100 and Transparency International ranking Ukraine 142 out of 175 countries. But when we look at what Ukrainians say about their own country, that's much more telling. And 87% of Ukrainians say corruption is a serious problem at the local level. And in a um, popular TV show, 80, what is it, 83% of Ukrainians said that um, they didn't even think that the anti-corruption reforms had gotten off the ground. And this really reflects daily life. If you're a Ukrainian, you can expect to pay a bribe for just about anything, whether it's um, to transfer property or to get proper medical care or at a police stop. And petty corruption is only part of it. If you look at the major institutions in Ukraine, they're all tainted by corruption. That's the court system, the prosecutor, the civil service, and the police, uh, and the police officers. That's why the new anti-corruption institutions are so important. There are three of them. The first is the anti National Anti-Corruption Bureau. The second is a specialized anti-corruption prosecutor. And the third is a national agency for the prevention of corruption. The first agency, and really the face of the reform effort in Ukraine, as far as corruption, is the National Anti-Corruption Bureau. This, this bureau is designed to fight high-level political corruption. And it's unique not only in its mission, but because it's the first of its kind agency in Ukraine. It was established with a clear and transparent process that was open to the public. Right now, it has a director, it has a staff, and it's ready to start operations. But the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, um, oh, I'm sorry, and I also wanted to mention that it's unique and that it has a civilian oversight committee. It has 15 members of prominent civil society organizations that are tasked with making sure this organization works ethically and transparently. It also has a dedicated budget and high salaries to uh, guard its members from being uh, subject to corrupt influences. But this doesn't work on its own. One agency that it absolutely needs to function properly is a specialized anti-corruption prosecutor. Now this prosecution is, prosecuting arm is really the enforcement arm of NABU. Um, it's gonna authorize investigations of the Anti-Corruption Bureau. It's gonna prosecute corruption cases and it's going to represent the state and civilians during trials. But the problem is it's still without a staff and director. Political meddling um, of the selection committees for the management has threatened to derail the entire process of setting up the prosecutor. In a um, recent statement to the Kiev Post, um, NABU director Artem Sitnik said that if the, the prosecutor doesn't get up, um, the agency doesn't get off the ground, that is going to not only derail the efforts of NABU and their ability to investigate corruption, but it could also derail the entire reform effort. Another agency 
that's critical to this um, corruption effort is the National Agency for the Prevention of Corruption. Now this agency is going to develop a national anti-corruption policy. But more importantly, what it's going to do is it's going to audit income and asset declarations of, hiring, of government officials and civil servants. Um, but this is also um, subject to political meddling. Right now, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a management, it doesn't have a staff. And without, so what we see is that um, two of the three major agencies in Ukraine right now that are designed to fight corruption are not working. And unless um, something changes, there, there are going to be problems on the horizon. So with all of this political meddling and the messy process and incremental process of change at the top, it can be understandable why Ukrainians lose faith in the reform process. That's why the new patrol police in uh, Ukraine is such a breath of fresh air. Now, historically, I think Ukraine's police have best been known for soliciting petty bribes at traffic stops. But in January, a new uh, Georgian uh, Deputy Minister of the Interior, Edka Zguladza, started to lead an overhaul of the patrol police. It started in January. They started recruiting cadets and thousands applied, and they narrowed it down through a rigorous selection process that involved like psychological testing and ethical testing, and they narrowed it down to 2,000 highly motivated cadets. Now these cadets received three months of training. They received instruction from US officers. And they received uh, Western style uniforms, patrol cars. And when they hit the streets in, uh, in Kiev in July, I was there. It was, it was actually really nice. It was on Krashatik. And you would see um, Kiev residents and tourists going up to the uh, patrol police officers and asking for a picture with them. And I heard. Um, stories from my colleagues about getting help from the, the new police officers in situations where it really would have been unthinkable in the past. The success of this effort really acted as a springboard um, to expand the patrol police model to other cities in Ukraine. And right now, um, patrol police have launched in Lviv, in Odessa, in Kharkov, and they're expanding, plan to expand even to the um, war-torn cities of Krematorsk and Slavyansk. So we're in a situation now where the promise of Maidan of a government that's accountable to the people is threatened by entrenched political interests. There, there is progress, and there are good reforms to point to, and there are great people working on these, both internationally and within Ukraine, specifically organizations that fight corruption like Reanimation Package of Reforms, or Anti-Corruption Action Center. But reform efforts continue to be derailed by these entrenched political interests. There's little political will inside the influential elite. And there's little stomach for corruption reforms. And until that changes, the, uh, the speed of these anti-corruption reforms is going to be slow, and the scope of the reforms is going to continue to be narrow. And to give an overview of some of the other um, areas where reforms are taking place and the progress, we'd like to now show a video that we recently um, presented at the YES conference. For years, Ukraine's ruling elite have promised to deliver on critical reforms.
but these promises remain unfulfilled. Since 1992, Ukraine's economy has floundered, while Poland's has flourished. The country's elite profited from the dysfunction. Ukraine has constantly failed at reforms. It ranks 96th in doing business. 142nd in corruption perception. And belongs to 50 countries with the worst rule of law. Ukraine is starting to make positive changes. However, the pace has been slow. A breakdown of the major reform efforts shows that progress was particularly slow in the area of decentralization, competition policy, and governments. But much better improving public finance. rehabilitating the banking system. Business deregulation. And energy sector. Most positive legislative changes have been seen in anti-corruption. Ukrainians think the country is moving in the wrong direction. Corruption remains a major concern for business, and 28% feel it has gotten worse. Parliamentarians are more engaged than their longer-serving colleagues, and they are more likely to support reform efforts. New institutions, such as patrol police, are addressing the issues of corruption and public trust. Although there are fresh faces in the leadership, the lower level of bureaucracy, the prosecutor's office, the tax service, customs, and the courts remained staffed by the old guard. 
has provided little support to the cabinet that it appointed. And the parliament itself is becoming more polarized. The de facto majority in the parliament that tends to vote together is shrinking. regulatory enforcement, Ukraine ranks second to last in the region. The effect on foreign investment has been a particular concern. Ultimately, you, Ukrainians, will find yourselves on the path to the future. This is a crisis between reaction that is bound to fail and the future where there will be progress. And uh, uh, my you name is Anna Schultz. So you've heard the let me just start with time the for your 2015 We look forward to seeing you, Amanda, anytime, any place. Tomorrow Without night, ado, the next night, next your year, you're always welcome here at the Olympia. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, let me just uh, first comment a little bit upon the presentation. Uh, and I'll focus on uh, both of the uh, presentations. First, uh, I think it's uh, very important what Olena said here. The reforms that have been undertaken have been very substantial. Been more than 400 reform laws. And I would say that uh, the most important uh, reforms are first of all in the energy area, because energy was always the big area of corruption. Now the energy prices are up to half of the cost recovery level, rather than being down at one-eighth before. And what always happened was that some oligarchs wanted uh, and did buy gas at the low price and sold it at an eight times higher price. That's how you make real money in Ukraine. Now you can't make that much money uh, in that fashion any longer. I don't know if anybody's uh, doing it right now. So therefore, gas prices is the most important anti-corruption uh, <clears throat> action. And uh, then uh, 56 banks have been closed out of 180 in the last um, uh, year and a half. This is also a major anti-corruption measure because the standard way of these banks was to give 80% of the loans to themselves, to the owner, and you only need 8% capital. So therefore you could give yourself 10 times more money than you had in capital, 
which is good business. And therefore, many people did it as long as it was allowed. This is a major cleanup we are uh, seeing. The third thing that uh, Olena did not uh, press upon is that there had been a substantial fiscal adjustment. And we don't really know how much it is, but public expenditure has been cut by at least 5% of GDP, probably significantly more. And this is mainly because of uh, reduced energy subsidies, which is really the worst uh, way of uh, wasting money. And then we have a lot of anti-corruption uh, measures, like uh, you, if you have a bank in Ukraine now, you have to say who is the beneficiary owner. Previously, that was not necessary. The same is proceeding uh, to enterprises and uh, e-procurement, as both uh, speakers emphasize here, is important. Where I would like to take an issue is on all these anti-corruption bodies. Uh, as uh, Mike quite uh, well pointed out, nothing is really functioning. This is very much uh, caused by um, uh, Western donors insisting on these uh, uh, anti-corruption bodies being uh, uh, created. But look up on the numbers. Here you're supposed to have one big anti-corruption uh, prosecutor. Sorry, Ukraine has 18,000 prosecutors who are all solidly, pervasively corrupt. There might be the odd honest prosecutor among them, but these, uh, this is the real force of corruption in Ukraine. And let me quote uh, from a speech that uh, uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Pyatt, the US ambassador to Kiev, gave on the 24th in Odessa. Uh, I quote, there is one glaring uh, problem that threatens all the good uh, work uh, being done in Ukraine. That obstacle is the failure of the institution of the prosecutor general of Ukraine to successfully fight internal corruption. Rather than supporting Ukraine's reforms and working to root out corruption, corrupt actors within the prosecutor general's office are making things worse by openly and aggressively undermining reform. I applaud these uh, words by uh, Ambassador Payet. This is the key. If you don't get control over the ordinary prosecutor general, then you can't do anything. And the other problem is 10,000 judges also perceived as pervasively corrupt. There have been attempts to sort them out, but they are by and large protected by uh, the Constitution. It's very difficult to uh, change uh, judges, and if some are being changed, other corrupt judge, uh, judges make sure that the others are reinstituted. So what do you do? Uh, the Ukrainians understand these problems unlike the West, and they pr proposed last year a law on lustration, which was adopted on the 16th of September. It happened to be in uh, Kiev outside the parliament that day, and there were uh, big demonstrations in favor of lustration. So the parliamentarians felt the pressure so strong that they adopted it, uh, and the president signed it 
just before uh, uh, the deadline. The problem is that uh, 800 people have been lustrated, far too few, and the West doesn't understand this. There is something called the Council of Europe, which is supposed to impose uh, uh, Western legal standards. And you know, in the West, we don't have collective justice, we only have individual justice. And lustration is perceived as collective justice. My view is you can't have individual justice be, uh, before you have got uh, cleaned out the top of these institutions. So I'm strongly in favor of lustration as much of Ukrainian civil uh, society. So we have to clean up these two institutions, the Prosecutor General Office and uh, uh, the courts. Otherwise, uh, all these other efforts, as the Ukrainians who rightly point out, don't work. And uh, I very much like here how you show that um, uh, people do not perceive that corruption has uh, been reduced. If you ask businessmen, uh, we were at this YES conference in, in Kiev two weeks ago. What businessmen say is that uh, the, the, there is as much corruption as before, but it's more disorganized. Now we don't know whom we are supposed to pay. So it's not the sense that uh, anything is easier, but it's more uh, complicated. And I think this is what is essential. And just a word on these uh, cute uh, patrol police. There are 2,000 of them. There are more than 150,000 people working in the police minister, the minister of interior. And these patrol police are at the lowest level. When I saw them now in Kiev, I see two of these new patrol, uh, patrol police, two of the old traffic police, and then two of the other police standing there at a suitable distance from one another, watching one another so that nobody does any useful work. I was not impressed. <laughs> uh, you have to start from the top and clean up in order to get anything done. Thank you. Uh, if you would like to respond, then I open up the floor. <laughs> sure. Do you want to go first? Yeah, just maybe a couple for you. Yeah, thank you for being for being so critical, it's, it's um, yeah, I think it's very, it's very important, and all, all, all your points you made are valid. And um, I have to defend a little bit, though I'm supposed to, you know, to put pressure on the on the government as a part of the civil society. Here, I would like to to defend the police because actually now there is a transition period. Yeah, so that all we have like two old milita militia and a new police because now the legislation is kind of in the transition process. And the end on the on the new police uh, will remain. But I, at the same time, I totally agree that the changes should come from the top, um, preferably everywhere. But without changing the top, uh, this uh, this positive uh, development that we see with the new police and everywhere, uh, they they will they will not work. I think. Yeah. yeah. I guess I have a little bit different view on the patrol police. I think it's extremely important right now to have symbols of success, something that ordinary people can see and feel, at least one successful reform. And it is true that they are the lowest level um, police. And that creates concerns long term for their morale. They have, for instance, arrest somebody. They have to hand them off to somebody higher up the food chain who hasn't gone through reforms. They have to 
hand them off into a system, as you pointed out, which is totally corrupt, whether it's the prosecutors or the court. But it is, uh, it's such a popular effort, and it's such a symbol for Ukrainian people that I personally have hope that it can start to generate some momentum from the grassroots level, from the voters. And I, I'm with you guys. I, it has to come from the top, but you have to have support from the people. And as much as they've lost faith in reforms right now, this is something positive to point to, and I think that's very important. And as far as the, um, the, the prosecutor and its, its role with uh, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, it, uh, absolutely true. The, the prosecution is um, totally corrupt. But there is a tension right now, and there are multiple ways to read it, but there's a tension right now within the prosecutor's office between reform elements and the, um, the old guard. And the reform elements are read, led by a new Georgian um, deputy minister called David uh, Sakvaralidze. And this summer, for instance, there was a high-profile case where he arrested two um, prosecutors uh, that had been caught in a sting accepting large bribes. And uh, the prosecutor general and his uh, allies tried to intervene. And this, um, this kind of blew up in the media and it really announces the division within the general prosecutor's office. And if we're lucky and if there is an independent, politically independent prosecutor that's attached to the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, perhaps it can work. And it's also important that the National Anti-Corruption Bureau is well known. Like if you go into the regions of Ukraine, they'll never have heard, hear of the prevention agency or the specialized prosecutor that they will know about NABU. So I think it's worth mentioning that for, for some portion of the population, that's also a symbol of the reform effort. And so if that fails, um, like the director of NABU recently said, it, it could really you know, have broader implications for the reform effort. It's just some of my thoughts. Thank you. Let me open up to the floor. Questions, comments? Please stand there. Wait for the mic. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, Edmund Rhodes from CREA Public Relations. Uh, I was interested in the comment that you made, uh, Mike, toward the end in talking about the, the public support and the grassroots level and, and thinking about the next set of elections. Uh, I was troubled reading in The Economist recently that only 3% of Ukrainians are satisfied with the pace of reform. And I, I've seen you know, uh, uh, other cases in Eastern Europe uh, one, one comes to mind where a government was, did an excellent job of the pace reforms, you know, with, you know, like Ukraine is doing now, putting tremendous effort into it, but only to see, you know, not the same level of effort put into public outreach and only to lose at the next elections. I, I was wondering if, if you could say something about, you know, or, you know, what you see on the ground, the effort that is being put in by the government to manage public expectations, to communicate about what exactly they're doing in, in terms of the, uh, the reforms uh, and if there's any of the, the, we saw some of the finances that are going in, is any of that going to help the government's capacity? Is the capacity there? Do they have the capacity to communicate in that manner? If you could say uh, a little bit about that. Thank you. Let me add to that. Is it substance or presentation and communication that is this year? Sure. Um, well, it's, I, I will say that it's, it's hard for me to speak, I guess, to the perception since I'm not Ukrainian, the percep general perception of Ukrainian. But what I can say is that what I see is that there's, they don't do a very good job of presenting the reform effort. And what's presented, I think, is by necessity, it's not substance, because generally PR campaigns aren't about substance, they're about image. Um, 
what, what I think is important is, I think what's realistic is for civil society to act as the government's mouthpiece on this. They're trusted. Um, they have um, local standing. But they don't have the, um, I guess, the infrastructure in their organizations or necessarily the expertise, I think, to get out the, the message that reforms are happening and to talk about the reforms they're doing. I think that's a weak point. Um, and they would, the effort would probably be well served if more focus was put on presentation. And again, whether that's substance or, or image, to me, it doesn't make much difference. I think you need to explain generally what's going on and show, um, get, give the public some kind of grasp and some kind of hope in the reform effort. I hope that answers the question. Can I add a little bit? Oh, please, yeah. As a, as a local, uh, what, what I see that the communication was a really a disaster in the very beginning. And uh, yeah, we, there is a plausible explanation because half of the government are technocrats who used to work in business and they were not supposed to communicate. When I talked to the finance minister, um, you know, she, she's, she's really doing a very good job in, in, um, in terms of fiscal consolidation and debt restructuring and everything now, the tax reform that they're preparing. And uh, she said, you know, I used, to, uh, I used to do something and then report the results. I'm not used to, you know, to, to explain to people that, uh, that I have to do something. And uh, that, was, uh, that was in the beginning. Now it is changing, and I see changing. Uh, the new new people who came to, to the government are changing in this respect. They have a deputy uh, minister of the economy who is uh, in charge of this um, electronic public procurement, a very big deal. Now they already they run this e-pilot project in public procurement. A very, very small one where uh, only uh, several organizations and ministries uh, uh, and, and some others participate. And they managed to save a huge amount of money already. Like uh, the latest that I heard from them was uh, 300 million rivnias. So this you have to divide by 20 approximately. So, and the, now he was very silent in the very beginning. Now he's everywhere on Facebook, on Twitter, on each TV channel advocating and showing what, uh, what has been done and what needs to be done. So I think it's, it's, it's improving, though, and it's proving in, in quite quickly because these people learn how to do it. But at the same time, the problem is that population, um, population doesn't believe to words only. These words need to be supported by real actions, and this is especially important <coughs> when we are talking about corruption. You know, the, the prime minister talking about, okay, we are fighting corruption, we are fighting corruption, and then people see that nothing changes on the streets. This is really not a proper way of doing this. Yeah, never anybody who's defending corruption. Uh, Colin Cleary, U.S. Institute of Peace. Hi, thanks. I would uh, be interested in what the panel might have to say about uh, what Saakashvili is doing in Georgia and whether he is a test case for the move to, from evolutionary to revolutionary reform. You mean Odessa, I presume? In Odessa, what did I say? <laughs> I hope I did. Please. Yeah, I can, uh, I can share my personal view on, uh, on this uh, appointment. Yeah. The appointment was a very smart move, I would say, um, for several reasons. First of all, the Odessa region itself uh, is historically 
uh, was a very corrupt uh, region. Yeah? Because there is a seaport and there is a smuggling that was flourishing all the time, just from the very beginning. Um, and definitely, if um, only strong individualists, Saakashvili, would be able to, to deal with, with these challenges. Uh, so, uh, he is a strong individual, he is an uh, excellent public speaker, and really keeps support of population. So this is another reason why his appointment is good. The third reason is that there is now some a little bit of competition between the prime minister and uh, the uh, region uh, governor in terms of you know in terms of kind of who is who is doing uh, better. Uh, so uh, from the political standpoint, this is this is also a positive uh, move. So uh, the key question whether uh, Saakashvili will be able to cope with. Uh, oligarchs who really were very strong in this particular region, and whether he will be able to uh, deliver on, on, on his promises. And uh, I believe he will be, and this will be a huge success story that could be spread over the rest of the country. Ed Verona. Yes, Ed Verona with McLarty Associates. Um, Leadership starts at the very top, and you haven't mentioned anything about President Poroshenko and what um, example it, it, he Can you speak closer to the mic where it doesn't work? Does it work? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm sorry. Ed Verona with McLarty Associates. Um, could you say a word or two about what you believe President Poroshenko should be doing to set an example, to uh, drive through this reform effort? Secondly, do you believe that the upcoming local elections will produce pressure from below to start reforming the, uh, the civil service, the judiciary? And thirdly, if neither of those two things produces the desired result, do you believe there's a potential for another Maidan that would bring about a sub substantive change in the whole system? Thank you. Well, the good questions. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, regarding what, what uh, Petro Poroshenko should do, uh, so the, in Ukraine the division of power between the president and the prime minister is this follows that actually the prime minister is more responsible for the economic bloc and the um, uh, president is responsible for, um, uh, for the uh, judicial system, for the prosecutor office and for external policy. Uh, so basically, uh, that's, that's clearly as Andrew said that uh, the judicial system and the prosecutor office is a major stumbling blocks on the way of uh, reforms. And that's clear that these institutions need to be changed. So uh, I think the best way to address this issue is, is to do something similar to this patrol police, so kind of a dual track approach. It's, I think, it would be very difficult to just, you know, to fire all the judges, even if there is political will, so that just the whole system will stall. So it should be something you should be created from scratch that will work in parallel with the old system, and the old system will just uh, gradually disappear, and the new one will be, um, will be created. On the local elections, yeah, local elections is, um, will be kind of a test, but not in a sense that you uh, mentioned, but in a sense, uh, when, how much the population supports populist uh, parties. There are several of them that emerge or re-emerge. This is a party um, had, uh, uh, led by Yulia Tymoshenko, who was former prime minister of um, Ukraine. She is very strong in her statements. She 
advocates for gas tariff decline. She said it's unfair and it should be uh, cut down. And uh, yeah, she's, she's very vocal and um, she has kind of many supporters. Also, there are some other uh, political parties that are more kind of also uh, say that the government is doing a bad job, that people need to get higher salaries, higher pensions and everything. So, and uh, if uh, these parties will, um, will perform well in local elections, uh, that means that they potentially can destabilize the work of the parliament, so they can call for early parliamentary elections. So I don't think we should expect some very positive result in general from local action. The, what we should expect uh, at best is that this system and that, that, that actually the, the parties of the president um, will get uh, enough uh, support not to let the populist to, uh, to derail the current political setup. Sorry, uh, yeah. The only thing that I would add is um, from, from the people that I speak to, some of who live in the regions, um, there is a perception that, uh, of course, Poroshenko is not doing, doing enough on reforms. And um, I, I think one, one thing that speaks to this is the, the issue with the general prosecutor, the head of the general prosecutor's office, is widely seen as um, preserving an old corrupt system of doing business. And despite calls to dismiss that uh, general prosecutor, um, he, remains in, he remains in his position. And I think until you see some action on uh, leader, major leaders within these agencies, there's going to be continued skepticism among the public about the, uh, the commitment to reforms. Yeah, let me add here. Yeah, there was a question. Sorry, let me add here. Uh, when we were in Kiev now, virtually every taxi driver said there will be a third Maidan. <laughs> we are only stealing up there. And uh, the, this has to change. So my guess is that we will see the prosecutor general being sacked pretty soon. This is the third prosecutor general in one and a half years. And uh, you mentioned this incident when uh, his uh, Georgian deputy was uh, arrested because he broke into an office and arrested a corrupt uh, top prosecutor in Kiev. And of course, you are not allowed to damage state property, which happened to be the door that he broke down. And that was more serious than that this prosecutor had, was it half a million dollars in cash in his office, which did not quite belong there. So I think that the prosecutor general will have to go. And then if three have been sacked in one and a half years, the next prosecutor general will realize that if he doesn't behave decently, he will be sacked very soon again. So therefore, I think that the next prosecutor general will have to be much better. So I think that this is uh, something positive that is uh, likely uh, to, to happen. And Ed, let me add to what um, uh, Olena said about what uh, Parashenko should do. He's not actively running his company still, Russian, and uh, he should put it into a blind trust. This has repeatedly been put to him. He promised before he was elected that he would sell it. Obviously, now it's not a good time to sell an enterprise, but he can put it into a blind trust. So this is uh, something that I really think that uh, donor uh, countries should demand from the president, because this is not uh, 
uh, uh, quite uh, permissible. Yeah, just, just, uh, oh, just a very short note to this. Um, yeah, on, on, on third Maidan and the uh, possibility of it. Yeah, people are really getting more and more dissatisfied. That's why we call our brief that reforms should really speed up because it's not, we don't have time for evolutionary reforms. We need uh, quicker revolutionary reforms. But at the same time, many people are aware that we have a conflict with a big uh, a neighbor, yeah, northern neighbor. And this northern neighbor will be very happy to see any street protests and will be happy to fuel them and to change the management and administration in this country. That really prevents many from going on streets at mm. the moment. Mm. Anna? Um, my uh, comment question is to Aliona Bilan. And uh, I just want to say that the reason I um, take liberty of speaking is because normally Whatever I do on the rights, I try to read and memorize by heart as close as possible because it's so brilliant. And here I um, heard something that is not about economics. Uh, you said that it is hard to um, sack all judges, I, I guess you said. So we need to implement new elements and they will leave along with the old elements. And your northern neighbor, as you called Russia, tried to do exactly this. Uh, beginning in 1992 and on, actually 91 even, and um, you, we know the result, right? So on the other hand, other uh, countries such as Georgia and uh, Estonia uh, did uh, different. Uh, they, they did uh, something drastic, scary, which is difficult to do. <laughs> they sacked everyone, yes. And Eastern Germany. And then they took healthy part right back, right back. Like in Georgia, one third of their police was the old police. But first, you get rid of the old organism because bodies tend to reject foreign bodies. So how do you know that the young elements with gradually new ones will prevail and the old will die? The old one is very strong very experienced. So what if the opposite happens? I mean, this is something to consider. Yeah, that's true. But what I meant is not to integrate new people into the old system. It's just to create a new system with new people. Yeah? And uh, yeah, I know that Georgia did a great job, especially with police, but I'm not sure that they did the same with the uh, judicial system because actually you need uh, trained uh, uh, people who know the local legislation, and this is the biggest problem. You cannot do it in three months, yeah? So that's why with the judicial reform, it will be the most challenging task for Ukraine, I think. And uh, what I would like to stress that it's, it's not about bringing new, young, uh, motivated individuals to the old system. It's just creating little by little a new, uh, a new system with uh, these people. Well, I'd like to add that talking about mass lustration also brings up the issue of who's going to decide which judges come back. Um, we've seen with the Anti-Corruption Bureau and the agencies the hyper-politicized environment of just getting a selection committee in place to choose those types of representatives who currently have no local standing. And you run into an issue of how you're going to have a fair and balanced process of bringing people back and ensuring that corrupt judges don't come back into the system. I, I know that you've done some work on this, Dr. Zaslin, and um, I, 
I think that's a major issue. And then also you'd have to have support from the West. And, and right now I don't think there's any stomach or political will for mass lustration in Ukraine. The West is the main problem in this regard. The Ukrainians are fine, but you have a combination of the Western idea of rule of law and the old elite's view of rule of law, which happen to coincide for very different reasons. So I have two hands there. You with the glasses first and then the... I have glasses, but we, we coordinated the question, so I'm going to hand over <laughs> the mic to... Yeah. Hi, my name is Oklada Torianyi. I'm with the Woodrow Wilson Center. I have two very brief questions. Firstly, a closer to the... Okay. Firstly, um, you started off your presentation on a very or fairly positive note, and it became sort of successively more pessimistic as the film went on. <laughs> so my first question would be to the panel. Overall, do you think Ukraine will succeed, or will we see sort of a repetition of, of uh, previous attempts at reform? And then following from that, what do, should the West do to support Ukraine's reform efforts? Thank you. Or should, should we take both questions at the same time? Sorry, my second question is posed by, by Ricardo, so it's fine. <laughs> please, please. Well, we don't have other, other, other options to succeed. You know, the, the failure of Ukraine would, be, would mean a success of Russia. That, that, that's a very simple answer to your question. So I, I cannot afford to be pessimistic in this case, living, living in this country. And that's why I, mean, I devote my time to, to work to Ukraine, uh, to this monitoring index, to, to put some pressure on the government to show where they really lag behind. And I devote my time to advising the economy ministry on how to structure the macroeconomic department or organize it. So that's, uh, that's, I think that Ukraine's greatest assets post-Maidan is a civil society. That many people are getting more responsible and don't rely on politicians and try to do everything possible themselves. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think civil society is key to Ukraine's success. Um, and personally, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm very optimistic but uh, I, there's, there's no option but to succeed in this. Um, uh, there was something else I wanted to say, but uh, I'll pass it on. I can't remember it. Let me add here. You need to get rid of a few people. Here uh, it's Nova uh, Vremia of Ukraine that put these three people on, on the front. They are all senior people in the parliament. And uh, the text reads, uh, gray cardinals of the government. Uh, a fundamental problem in Ukraine is that elections are very expensive. In order to get the money for the elections, you need to have gray cardinals. Each party has one or two gray cardinals. These uh, gray cardinals know how to tap the 1,800 state companies in Ukraine on money. This is their prime uh, occupation. And uh, nobody thinks that they can be elected if they don't have a very substantial amount of money, uh, $50 million at least for uh, uh, an election of a party. And um, this has to be broken. And this can be broken in several ways. You prohibit uh, uh, the, the expensive ways of television advertising, as most European countries have done. 
you uh, prohibit this kind of private financing. You sack these people from parliament. I heard Sergei Leshenko, one of uh, uh, well, the, the leading muckraking uh, journalist, now member of the parliament for Parashenko's block, he uh, stated at the Yes conference that he thought that half of the parliamentarians now were honest people, which is a very considerable improvement. Uh, previously, perhaps you had a few percent of the parliamentarians who were honest, uh, honest uh, uh, people. And you need to privatize all these state companies. I would like to say, see virtually all, apart from, say, uh, a few dozen enterprises, being virtually uh, sold off for, for anything because they cost the government the state more money than they, than they give now. State, a state company is a way of tapping the, uh, the government on, on money. So these are the things that need to be sorted out. And of course, sacking the prosecutor general and the, and the judges. Uh, as Anna said, exactly as Estonia and East Germany did most efficiently, they sacked them all. Sakashvili did the same in, in uh, uh, Georgia. So, and I quite like this, the tone in the box uh, uh, Ukraine report that uh, uh, evolution doesn't work. We have to be uh, more revolutionary. And the question is if uh, the speed can be caught up. And I'm basically optimistic. But uh, you can see as a litmus test, is the prosecutor general sacked within two months? Then we have reason to be optimistic. Is no, if not, that's a serious problem. The West. Uh, the West, that is the US government, uh, makes very clear statements about what should be done. Uh, those of you who heard uh, Vice President Biden speaking to the investment conference on the 30th of uh, July here, uh, could hear that he said that uh, he had been in Ukraine three times uh, the last year, and he had spoken to uh, President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsenyuk 36 times. And uh, these conversations are no soft uh, uh, conversations, but very specific about what is going on. I think that this is good. Uh, and. Uh, with regard to the European Union, the European Union is now demanding very specific energy reforms in order to give uh, 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 electricity market uh, uh, before the end of October and uh, 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 some price reform uh, to be undertaken uh, this year. And uh, otherwise, 600 million uh, uh, euro we, we, in uh, macroeconomic financial assistance will not uh, be paid out. Uh, these things do work because in Ukraine today you have a very substantial opinion within the government, within the parliament, and among the population who are pushing for this. You can't force a government to do reforms against its will, but you can uh, force a divided government to do what the better part of the government wants to do. Just Sorry. keep financing and keep pressure. That's, that would be my answer. Yeah. And not, not relax any of this. And also keep pressure on, on Russia as well in terms of sanctions and uh, everything because 
Well, if there, is, if there is another huge escalation of the conflict, definitely well, it will be very difficult to, uh, to continue and, or to speed up the reforms because resources will be just uh, attracted towards, uh, uh, towards fighting with, uh, with uh, Russia. I should add here also uh, swap credits. Uh, the critical weakness of the Ukrainian economy is that the reserves are too small, just over $13 billion. The IMF think uh, that they ought to be at least $70 million, three months of imports. I think that they should be rather $20 billion at a minimum. Without that, you can't liberalize uh, uh, foreign exchange so that it becomes uh, possible to pursue normal foreign trade. Because right now, Ukraine has uh, draconian currency regulations in order not to run out of reserves. Uh, Sweden just gave half a billion dollars in a swap uh, uh, credit, note billion, half a billion dollars. Two other European central banks are now preparing to give sub, uh, swap uh, uh, credits. I would like to see more of it. The advantage of these swap credits is that they go to the central bank to re reinforce uh, the reserves. Uh, and this is uh, uh, a way of financing that involves minimum risks, since they are sh short term, the money essentially stays in the foreign uh, capitals. So I would like to see several billion dollars uh, uh, of, uh, of this as the next. There's two more people here, uh, two more hands, and I think they'll stop with that. Please, you first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, microphone there. Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. I came here to learn and not to know much, and I think I learned a lot, and thank you. But what I don't understand, and we do a lot of work in Africa, a lot of work in China, is that, at least for many of us, stability is what you need. And it's true, you could get stability in the perfect world by cleaning up the system and designing it. Also, you get stability by having a strong man, and the strong man eventually knows how to lead power correctly and so on, et cetera. And the only thing I see in U Ukraine is nothing but service and chaos. You know, and I remember first we had those two leaders with the big names and the Y who fought, somebody got poisoned. We had that lady who was sitting in jail, was going to be the hero. They all turned out to be corrupt, so we now have a new, <laughs> we now have a new group of people happening. In the meantime, nothing's happening. So the only question I really pose to civil society, do you realize the importance of having perhaps at the beginning a strong person, not looking necessarily at what he may have done in the past or what he may, well, hopefully in the future will do better. But, he said, but that's just kind of more of a question, or do we have nothing but just this thing going around in a big cycle and a lot of do good is coming in and explaining what we should do. So I've been so frank, but I'm from New York. <laughs> Thank you. Please. One more, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, please go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Russell Pittman from the Antitrust Division at the Justice Department. Good to see you. Um, the views expressed are not necessarily those of the U.S. government or the Department <laughs> of Justice. Um, you've mentioned uh, state enterprise reform. You've mentioned the energy sector, um, deregulation, competition. Um, it seems to me that, that one sector that usually doesn't get the respect it deserves in discussions like this is the railway sector. Uh, a country like Ukraine, where the economy depends on steel, iron ore, grain, coal, you're going to have to reform the railways and get them working better if the economy is going to, going to succeed in the long run. Um, I wonder if you all um, are familiar with the legislation that uh, Minister of Infrastructure, Pivo Varsky, had introduced before the parliament. Uh, if you have any thoughts on it, if you have any thoughts on whether it has any chance of succeeding. Thank you. 
Thank you. Well, yeah, um, I know that there is an idea to reform the uh, uh, railway. Uh, that, that, that actually the, it, the company is very inefficient, but it's a, one of the biggest employers. Yeah, so that it's not not that easy to again fire everyone and um, and find new people. To be honest, I'm not a specialist in this particular uh, uh, piece of legislation that was uh, uh, that was presented. But uh, from from what uh, Mr. Piwarski, the infrastructure minister, is doing, I'm pretty sure there's something good uh, on the table. So yeah, the, the 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 parliament is always a problem. Yeah, that 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 that's. Um, um, that should be taken into account, and whether it's, I think that no legislation will, will, no kind of a progressive legislation has a chance to pass parliament before uh, October 25 local elections. So I think it's more kind of a longer term uh, perspective. Hopefully by the year end there will be more, uh, uh, more options for this. And do you have a question, or do you yeah, Mike, sure. want to well, take it? I, I don't know much about the railway sector, but I, I would say that. Um, Addressing the the roads in Ukraine would definitely be a help with commerce. It's a it's a anybody would wonder how you would get a, a deliveries or eighteen wheelers and get real commerce going in the country. Um, so as far as transportation, that's the only thing I, I would have to offer. But but to your point on um, whether stability should be valued more than the, I guess what the alternative is, and that's a democratic process. I think uh, you have to look at the dynamics in Ukraine. And Ukraine isn't a country where um, outside actors have um, tried to force democracy on the country. Um, this is a country where people themselves are demanding democracy. And they, they did have a kind of a strong arm leader in, in Yanukovych, and it led to a revolution. So I wouldn't say that, I see your point, but in this context, I wouldn't say that having a strong leader would solve the problem of instability. And also, it's worth noting that in our history, I mean, they don't have the same cultural history as the U.S., and in our history, it's been a long, messy process. <clears throat> and so we need patience, and we need to support Ukraine, and we need to put money into things like the civil society. We need to guarantee that institutions like the National Anti-Corruption Bureau have long-standing fu funding, that that won't be attacked for political reasons, or that the police patrol will have um, funding not just for one or two years, but for seven or ten years. Um, I think we need to take a step back and look, and not look at six months or a year, but look 10 years down the road. And what types of steady ourselves with patience and um, be prepared to take on some of this instability for what is hopefully a functioning country in, in 10 years. Let me follow up on that. Uh, it's a good question, Mr. Landy. Uh, my big point here is if corruption is your main problem, you don't want political stability because uh, that preserves corruption. The three Baltic countries and Poland that have done the greatest uh, uh, progress in terms of uh, fighting corruption and market reform, they change uh, government on average every year during the first decade of reform. While you are perfectly right in uh, your contention, the, the two countries that have got most uh, foreign direct investment uh, proportionately uh, in the former Soviet Union are Azerbaijan and uh, Kazakhstan, 
which have had perfect stability and have had no particular attempts to, uh, to fight, uh, fight corruption. Uh, even if you look up on in Eastern Europe, uh, the Czech Republic, which had great stability in the government, but did good reforms, uh, they got far more foreign direct investments than anybody else uh, uh, early on. So you sort of have, uh, have to choose in mo most cases. And I prefer to fight corruption and have uh, political instability. And then, unfortunately, you don't get that much foreign direct investment. Any last question? One question back. Thank you. My name is Schneider. I'm from Institute of International Finance here in Washington. And I have two questions. One is economic, and the other one is more about the governance in Ukraine. The economic, we've been talking about uh, how difficult it actually is to reform Ukraine. I'll start with democratic, and I will go to economic in a second. So we are talking about how difficult it is to reform Ukraine. And sometimes what escapes our attention is how big the country is. It's, it's a country which is bigger than France. And what do you think about the recent notions to decentralize Ukraine, to have a governance more diversified among regions? Uh, is, it, is it a threat for reforms or is it a hope for reform? When we go to Kiev, we speak to people, sometimes what we hear is that it's too difficult to reform from Kiev. We have to have a more power to regions. And it's true that we hear from, more from people from West than people from East. So I would like to hear what, your opinion on that, whether you see this as a chance for fast reforms or whether it's a threat for integrity of Ukraine. And second, because I'm an economist, you look at the economic development in, in Ukraine. So I, I would wonder what, what, what do you think about how, how you see Ukraine in 2016, maybe 17, with uh, there's a conflict in East which will not be resolved anytime soon, probably. Uh, the capital controls are still very pervasive. Uh, the fiscal situation is very difficult. Uh, there is so far little foreign investment. So where do you see the source for potential growth in, in Ukraine in short time? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your questions. Um, let's start from the last because it's my field of primary expertise. Yeah? So now the economy has stabilized. It's uh, many signs of this. We have the stable effects market, though it's heavily regulated. We have a cash deficit of, uh, sorry, cash surplus of the um, general government uh, budget. Yeah? Uh, we have a um, balanced or even positive current account. Uh, well, before it was a 9% uh, GDP deficit. Yeah? So there is kind of a macroeconomic stabilization, and that means that the confidence is returning. So the first initial recovery will be driven mostly by the return of confidence. In the second quarter of this year, we see already uh, sequential growth in investment and real exports. That's still overshadowed and offset by declining consumption. But this is a first sign that the companies are feeling more confident and starting to uh, keep less of their money offshore, but more domestically and invest. And they also increase salaries, and means that the consumption will be uh, picking up a little bit. The consumer confidence is getting better. So the exports reorientation towards the EU is, um, has started, I would say. You, we don't see it on the macro level. We see it only in some selected products, like the honey, like some other agricultural goods. But it started, it's, it will be going on. So I think that uh, initially, there will be kind of a slow recovery. Whether we will be growing. Ukraine, I mean, by 3, 4, or maybe even 7%, that critically depends on foreign investment, yeah. 
And here, yeah, we, we return to the same question of structural reforms. If by, if prosecutor general is fired in two months <laughs> and there is more reforms, I'm pretty sure there will be, um, there will be foreign investment. But from talking to, to investors uh, here, uh, yeah, I see the great interest towards the country, but not many people really dare to step in at the moment. But interest is, is here for sure. And uh, on decentralization, just quickly, I think, um, uh, you know, that more than 70% of Ukrainians support decentralization. I think this, this, the country really, really needs this reform because it means better accountability of, uh, you know, of officials to, to population. That also another very important um, uh, kind of a feature of decentralization is that it will enable the new leaders to grow and to learn and to um, become a national leaders. Now it's really impossible, as Anders said, you know, to get a politician to become a politician need a sponsor, a great cardinal, yeah. And uh, you cannot really, really learn how to run even a small, a small town or a, a village, because you know. Uh, there is everything is occupied by vested interest here, mm -hmm. so I think that the country really need to uh, really need the decentralization, and uh, this reform is going to. I mean, it's in the process. It's very small, small mm -hmm. progress so far, but it's in the process. Mike, any last word? Um, sure. I uh, I haven't decided for myself on decentralization, but I can share my thoughts, and I think that the American in me wants to say that decentralization is absolutely necessary. The build accountability at the local level like Elena was talking about. But then you run the risk of um, who's going to be, who's going to take power in those local elections. And, um, you know, of course, there's no guarantee that they're going to be the people uh, we would want, especially with some of the, the control that, um, I guess, corrupt elements have at the local level. Um, so those, uh, I think those are two issues to weigh when, when talking about decentralization. <laughs> Thank you very much, Olena and Mike. And I should say that uh, we at the Atlantic Council are so impressed with Vox uh, Ukraine and their excellent website that uh, we are uh, intent on not doing this uh, issue brief only, but uh, uh, cooperate more closely with Vox Ukraine because we think that this is the best source of uh, uh, intelligent analysis in English that we are seeing coming from Ukraine. So what you are seeing here is a beginning of a closer cooperation. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.